Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to tell you about the Gitchy Manitou murders. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more crime over coffee content by signing up for a patreon you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content to check out this opportunity and sign up for the crime over coffee patreon visit www.patreon.com slash crime over coffee pod thank you again for all of your support on november 17th 1973 a couple is driving a car for a test drive to see if they wanted to buy it and they at this point are driving in Gitche manitou state park it is the park spans over south dakota and iowa so they were just driving around the area however unfortunately as they're driving around they come upon some bodies of dead what they presume to be teenagers and of course they go contact law enforcement and law enforcement arrives and finds out that there are in fact four teenagers that are dead in this area. They're able to identify that the bodies belong to 17-year-old Roger Essam, 18-year-old Stuart Bade, and his younger brother, 14-year-old Dana Bade, as well as 15-year-old Mike Hadrath. Investigators pretty quickly realized that all of the victims have been shot by presumably shotguns and at a close range. And they're actually able to identify three different gauge shotguns that were used, a 12, a 16, and a 20. And because of this, they're led to believe that there are multiple killers, likely three, because it is very unlikely for a killer to swap out, you know, weapons three times. They try to find Stuart Bade's 1967 blue van. Um, they were told that that's what the friends had taken out to go to Gitche Manitou, and they're unable to find it. Interestingly, the next day, 13-year-old Sandra Chesky, who at the time had been dating 17-year-old Roger Essam, came into the police station, and she had a story to tell them. What she said is that her and the four boys had gone out to Gitche Manitou to hang out for the night. They were going to listen to some music. Um, One of the boys played guitar, so he had brought his guitar with them. And she said that they did have a joint and that they were smoking. What she had said basically was that everything was pretty normal. They were just hanging out. And at some point they hear like, what sounds like somebody walking around the campsite where they're hanging out and two of the boys one of them being roger sandra's boyfriend go to kind of check out what is going on and what sounds they're hearing and what she says is that three guys came out of the woods and they say that they're narcotics officers and they basically shoot them all the boys it's over this kind of span of time where they're leading them around the woods and what she's saying is that she's taken 
by the gentleman. Um, specifically, one takes her and puts him and puts her in his truck and drives off. And they're still claiming to be narcotics officers saying, we know you have drugs, so we have the right to shoot you, basically. And she says that they're three middle-aged men and she says they were calling each other boss, JR or junior, and hatchet face, which I don't know how hatchet face got thrown in there, but... And what happens is basically boss puts Sandra in his car and drives her off. And as she's driving away, she sees JR and hatchet face kill them. Her story continues saying that boss drives her around for a while and they end up at this abandoned farmhouse where JR and hatchet face arrive. And it's at this point that JR comes to the truck and sexually assaults her. And she says that after this, Boss comes to the truck and tries to get her to go inside this house. And she understandably is freaked out and saying, no, please, no. And like really resisting. And it gets to the point where he's finally like, fine. He puts her in the car. He drives around for a while again. And then he ends up taking her home and dropping her off. And he says, if you say anything about this, we will come back and we will kill you. However, Sandra, as we'll come to find out, is basically a badass. And she realizes what had happened and she understands that she needs to go to the police and get these guys in custody. While Sandra is at the police station, she's recounting her story. And I do want to say there was some moments where investigators didn't quite believe her which is really unfortunate, but she is able to give very good descriptions of these men because she was with them for such a long period of time. She's able to give a description of the vehicle she was in. She was able to give a description of the um, abandoned farm that she was taken to as well. But unfortunately, you know, due to the fact that she had experienced this extreme trauma, she couldn't exactly remember where the farm was especially since afterwards boss drove her around for quite a long time before dropping her off and so it's at this point that investigators decide to look up and see what kind of abandoned farms are in the general area and drive Sandra around to see if she recognizes them because she does have a description she has some key features in her head and so in an interview with her, she's talking about this and talking about how they're driving around and she's, you know, having a hard time. They went to a lot of places where she was like, you know, this isn't it. And she discusses the frustration with the police. And I just think it's so saddening to see that because she is being so strong. And I think there is a little bit of not believing her maybe a lack of patience because of the fact that she was a young girl. I can't imagine after this horrible experience, you're getting driven around asking to recount these memories and the people getting mad or frustrated with you because you're not able to take them to the specific spot. Yeah, I feel like she's given so much details. She was brave enough to come to the police. She was brave enough to remember as many things as she can, but there's obviously going to be things that she's potentially forgetting. And it's not fair for them to be harsh towards her for that. Well, sure. And, you know, she's remembering so much, which is amazing in and of itself, because when you go through a trauma, like sometimes your body and brain just want you to forget it. So 
you know, I just, I give so much credit to her. She's such a strong woman. Something that Sandra had noted about the abandoned farmhouse, aside from kind of what she remembered it looked like, was that there was a red fuel tank that was beside the garage of the farmhouse. And so on November 29th, 1973, Sheriff Craig Vincent of the Lyon County Sheriff's Office is driving Sandra around. There's another officer in the car as well with her. They drive to this abandoned farmhouse near Hartford, South Dakota. And it just so happens that as they're driving in, a truck goes by and she sees the tank the red fuel tank and she sees in the truck boss and she recognizes him and she starts yelling that's him that's him basically um the sheriff kind of pulls over and it's like get out of the car <laughs> and he starts chasing down the truck so he's chasing him down and they end up stopping him and everything sandra had given to them matched the description of boss the description of the house the description of the truck she gave so many details about the truck she described what kind of car it was what the color was that there was gun rack in the back windshield of the truck so there was all these identifying features that matched up exactly to what sandra had said they bring this gentleman into custody and he is identified as 29 year old alan fryer what they find out from interviewing Alan Fryer, looking at descriptions and just, you know, common sense, is that they're able to identify the other two gentlemen as Alan Fryer's brothers. And this includes 24-year-old David Fryer and 21-year-old James Fryer. Throughout their accounts and Sandra's, they're able to identify what happened that night. What had happened was the Fryer brothers were out and they were hunting deer and they heard the kids in the Gitchie Manitou preserve and they hear them talking and laughing and playing music and they decide, hey, let's, you know, let's do this. Let's impersonate law enforcement. Let's take their drugs. I kind of assumed they decided they were going to murder them as well pretty early on. The three brothers come up to the camp and they end up opening fire and killing Roger Essam immediately. And at this time, they also shoot Stuart Bade and he's hit, but not dead at this point. And it's at this time that the other kids had actually like dove down and was trying to hide. This is when the brothers come out saying they're law enforcement and ordering them to come out of the trees. And this is when Michael and Sandra came out together. Michael, at this point, is shot in the arm by Alan Fryer. Michael and Sandra both just fall to the ground. And Alan's basically like, hey, there's no use playing dead. Get up. They then force Dana, Michael, and Sandra away from the camp. And they kind of have these discussions the brothers do together. And it eventually leads to them taking Sandra and forcing her into the truck. And Sandra talks about this and how when she's driving away, she kind of looks back and she sees them shoot Dana and Michael. And as I mentioned up front, all of them ended up passing away from their wounds. And it's at this point that the rest of the story kind of lines up with what Sandra had said that Alan Fryer drove her around still pretending to be an officer. He took her to the farm where he met up with 
the other two brothers where she was sexually assaulted by James. They dropped her off and made some comment that she was too young to get busted and that's why they let her go. You know, obviously this is such an unfortunate, unfortunate crime that happened, but at least they let her go because it is truly absolutely because of Sandra that these men were taken into custody. I know the experience had to be traumatic for Sandra and it had to be a lot of like weight to carry for a while around and maybe still is to this day, but it was very helpful and very, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but it, it was just beneficial that she was able to survive that and that they let her go and she was able to point them out and identify them and hopefully get some justice for these families. Absolutely. And I first heard about this case from a show that I watch. It's on Investigation Discovery. It's called No One Can Hear You Scream. It's about crimes that kind of happen out in the middle of nowhere, basically. And in this episode, it's season one, episode two. I do recommend everybody, if you want to, go watch it. But they interview Sandra. She's such a powerful woman. And you can tell how strong she is just from the interview. If not... From that, you can understand from this story and every officer and person involved in this case in the episode talks about how strong she was. To further this, on November 30th, they actually bring the brothers into a lineup and Sandra goes in and identifies them and picks them out. I mean, no fear in this. And if she does, she's, you know, just handling it so well. Yeah, that's incredibly impressive and powerful of her. As I mentioned... The brothers came up with a bunch of lies, conflicting stories immediately when they were interviewed by police. Alan had claimed that that the boys had shot at them first and they shot in self-defense. They said they basically just wanted to take the marijuana or the alcohol that they had. Also, something interesting, James, who was actually the one who sexually assaulted Sandra, basically said his brothers kind of did everything and that it was all on them and he was just there. And he even went as far to say that Sandra willingly had sex with him. Okay, and I'm sure Sandra very quickly was like, yeah, no, you're wrong. I know it was you. On top of all this, James also insisted that he truly had no part in shooting any of the other boys. And interestingly enough, he was actually serving time in the county jail previous to this, but was on a work release program. The night that this all happened, David, the middle child, had actually called saying that he was James's boss and that he needed James to work extra hours and extra shift. And this was so that they could stay out later. So as you can imagine, they're all a little sketchy. They're all doing things they aren't supposed to. They're all getting together and not following the law even up to this point. At this point, they bring James back to Sioux Falls because he's already serving a jail sentence there. And the other two, Alan and David, are taken to Lyon County Jail. Their bond is set at $400,000 each. And on December 1st, 1973, they are arraigned and charged with four counts of murder. On February 12th, 1974, at this point, Alan had already confessed to murdering Roger Essam. And so that was the manslaughter charge that went to David and James. David is convicted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He basically says at some point he's probably going to ask for the death penalty because he doesn't want to live his life in jail, saying that, quote, keeping me locked up for life can't turn around what happened. It can't bring those people back, end quote. Obviously, that 
rub would rub anybody the wrong way and screw him (laughs) you know what I mean like I just don't understand that kind of statement like you clearly don't have a lot of remorse for what happened he obviously doesn't have remorse but also like at this point like I think he's just probably bored in jail and just wants to die like it doesn't seem like it's coming out of like a I need to die because I'm terrible kind of manner it's more like I want to die because I don't want to live the rest of my life in jail and I disagree with that the death penalty should not be used only for that yeah I I just I don't like the idea of them getting to choose what happens absolutely not and you know he does well he asked for parole basically and he's denied it and it's because there's a testimony that comes up with this parole hearing where sandra comes and testifies as well as lynette who is mike hadroth's sister just another layer of sandra being such a strong woman she's consistently been incredibly strong throughout this entire story in February of 1974, Allen's trial began and he's found guilty on four counts of first degree murder on May 20th, 1974 and sentenced to four consecutive life terms in prison. And a month later on June 18th, his brother James is extradited back to Lyon County Jail for his trial. And actually at this point, the two of them, Allen and James, actually end up successfully escaping from jail. Um, They steal a car and take off, and they actually do end up getting arrested again, thank goodness, in Gillette, Wyoming, and they're brought back, and now they have these new federal charges because they escaped and crossed state lines. And then on December 3rd, 1974, James's trial starts, and they do determine that he's got a very low IQ, in poorly controlled behavioral issues. I guess I'll put quotes around that. And um, he's still convicted, though. And on December 30th, and he's found guilty of three charges of first-degree murder and one of manslaughter. And he's sentenced to life without parole. But something I want to know is that he's not charged for the rape. And this is because they were pretty convinced he was already going to be in prison for the rest of his life and they didn't want Sandra to have to go through that. I still think the charge should have come. Like, I think Sandra had already made her point and had already very clearly proven that he had raped her and I don't feel like she needed to necessarily sit through another trial. I feel like it just could have all been combined. But that yeah, I feel I like wonder, that charge should have been there. I wonder if there was a way that they could have convicted him without her physically coming in and testifying. I mean... During their time incarcerated, all the brothers did try to appeal their convictions. All of them failed, thank goodness. And they are all currently serving out life sentences. Alan is at the penitentiary in Amamosa, Iowa, and David and James are both at the Fort Dodge Correctional Facility in Fort Dodge, Iowa. And as I mentioned, they have, they've all been given life sentences and they have not been able to appeal their convictions at all. So we can probably assume and hope that they will be serving out the rest of their lives in prison. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. 
You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcast, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.